0: The media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story.
1: Listening to President Biden and his Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm, one might get the impression that the nation will soon be powered mostly by wind and solar energy. You might even think that we will no longer need a gasoline-powered car or a natural gas heated home. But is this even remotely possible any time in the foreseeable future? And would it even be a good thing if these transitions did occur? To give us solid answers to these questions, I am joined today by Steve Gorham. Executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America. Steve is a public speaker, a frequent guest on radio and TV, and an independent columnist. He's also author of three books on energy, climate change, and sustainable development, with over 100,000 copies in print. Steve's new book, Green Breakdown The Coming Renewable Energy Failure, will be out by August 1st. Steve holds an MS in Electrical Engineering from the University of Illinois. And an MBA from the University of Chicago, he has over 30 years' experience at Fortune 100 and private companies in engineering and executive roles. So, welcome to the
2: show, Steve. Hey, Tom. Great to join you again. Yeah, sure.
1: You know, one thing we hear about green energy—you know, it's going to provide our energy needs. I mean, how is it done so far in providing our energy needs?
2: Well, it's pretty—it's pretty small, actually. The uh, uh it's uh it's a pretty long history now already for renewables started about 1970 at that time the world was worried about two big issues uh one was air pollution and water pollution as well and then the the oil shocks of the 1970s the 73 oil embargo the iran uh, oil shock in 79 got nations thinking about how they could use other forms of energy uh like wind and like solar to serve our energy needs those first two drivers of renewables were solved along the way our air for example in the united states probably canada as well uh, pollutants are down about 80% since 1980 now and probably down uh, about 98% since the 1950s
1: that's really important i think people got to hear that again how much has pollution gone down in the last few decades
2: yeah it's it's an it's a very unknown story But if you take uh, the EPA data for their uh, six uh, criteria pollutants, it's down more than 80% since 1980. And that's after a number of years when uh, coal furnaces were uh, replaced by natural gas in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so that issue has been pretty well resolved. And then the same thing with the oil and gas issue. Geologists developed hydraulic fracturing. Many thought we're getting to peak oil by about uh, 2005, but we've gone well past that. And global reserves today are, are bigger for oil and gas than they were in the 1970s. Peak oil is probably a hundred years or, or more away. So the first two big drivers of renewables have been basically solved long before we had significant amounts of wind and solar. But then the world grabbed onto this, man-made climate change issue and decided that carbon dioxide was a pollutant, that we were gonna have a dangerous global warming. And so uh, the world has gone all in for wind and solar, and now more recently, uh, wind, solar, and biofuels, I should say, and more recently, uh, hydrogen fuel and carbon capture and storage. And the, with the goal to get to net zero by 2050, which means uh, emissions are very low and whatever we do emit, we try and capture. But as you say, it hasn't done a lot for us. If you look, for example, <laughs> Over the last 30 years, the United Nations formed the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 1989. 40 nations plus the European community signed the Kyoto Protocol Treaty in 1997, agreeing to reduce emissions. We built more than 300,000 wind turbine towers, but a very, very small part of of our uh, electricity has been uh, provided by wind and solar. I think it's about 4% 4% globally of our energy for, for wind, less than 2% for solar. And oil and gas and coal are still providing about 80% of our energy, same as it was back in about uh, the 1990s. There hasn't been much of a gain, really, despite probably 4 or $5 trillion spent at this point in time.
1: I mean, what happened?
2: Hydraulic fracturing was invented, if you will. That's part of it. Uh, hydraulic fracturing and horizontal, horizontal drilling, where geologists and petroleum engineers could get natural gas and petroleum from shale fields. That turned, for example, the United States into a big uh, petroleum product importer until, to the uh, biggest uh, exporter of oil in the world, the biggest exporter of natural gas and our our uh, U.S. production has increased from about 5 million barrels a day in 2008 up to almost 12 million barrels a day in the last 15 years. And then all over the world, they're discovering uh, other fields as well, offshore and other places. And so we, we have uh, lots of oil and gas, but we have many folks saying we can't drill anymore. So like, what's uh, happened
1: with the change of administrations? So I know at the end of Trump's administration, The U.S. were a net exporter of oil. What about now? I mean, how has Biden's policies changed things?
2: Yeah, it's uh, a lot of the press says that we're now a big dependent on oil and gas. The change has been very, very small. I sometimes put a graph up which shows our imports of petroleum products, which went up to about 60 percent in 2005. They went all the way down to zero in 2019. We were actually a net exporter of petroleum products, refined gasoline, diesel, other sorts of things. And in the last year or so under Biden, that, that has uh, turned around a little bit. We're probably a little bit of a net importer, but not like 60%, it's very, very small. And this year, the uh, I think the uh, Energy Information Administration is forecasting we will get back over about 12 and a half million barrels of crude a day and also a lot of uh, petroleum products exported. So uh, Biden has had had an impact on the industry, uh, but global prices for natural gas, for example, have skyrocketed. And so there's a lot of people uh, drilling and producing gas and oil as well. So the numbers are really small in that area. The the bigger issue is uh, the curbs that they're trying to put on uh, are vehicles, home appliances, Uh, All those sorts of things are are much bigger impacts potentially on on people. That's the area we really got to be concerned about.
1: Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. I'll put up on the podcast the graphs that you sent me because it really shows wind and solar are really pretty trivial contributors in comparison with fossil fuels.
2: There's a graph you're looking at that I like to call the energy mountain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Global energy consumption has tripled since 1965. And it's actually accelerated since the year 2000. We're using more and more energy. And if you plot on that, the amount of wind and solar, it's, it's way down a little tiny in the corner. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. We have never had a single year when the addition of wind and solar and other renewables has equaled the global increase in demand for energy. Every year we add about a United Kingdom of additional energy consumption and, and renewables have never been able to account for the increase let alone replace our traditional forms of energy. So we're a long, long way from this transition that everyone is calling for.
1: Mm -hmm. And yet I hear people saying, oh, well, China's pushing ahead with wind and solar power. Yeah, but they're pushing ahead with everything because they're so big and they're consuming energy so fast. I mean, they're pushing out far more coal plants, aren't they?
2: They are, yeah. They still get about 60% of electricity from coal. And again, if you look at transportation, 91% 91% of global transportation is powered by petroleum products. Another 4% is from natural gas. We only have about 3% that is from, uh, from biofuels and about 1% electricity at this point in time. <laughs> Again, very, very small. 99% of aircraft fuel, 99% of uh, shipping fuel is, is from hydrocarbons. And yeah, the uh, the world governments want these people to change, but it's going to be very expensive and take a long, long time if it does occur.
1: So, one percent are electric vehicles at the automobile level, and they want to make it a hundred percent.
2: Yeah, well, electrics are really yeah. I'm talking total transportation now, which would encompass everything. Oh, okay. Yeah, a little bit farther now. We have about 27 million EVs on the road today, out of 1.5 billion light vehicles. So that's a little less than 2% of the world. Last year, the sale of new vehicles, new light vehicles, was about 13% of the world. A lot of that was in China. So there there were quite a few sold, and they are penetrating world markets. But I think we're about to see a speed bump here. (laughs) Uh We're seeing it in Europe. Demand is down quite a bit. Germany cut all their subsidies. In the UK, it's now more expensive to charge in your at your house, in your garage, than to buy petrol. Uh, so uh, when things are very, very small, they can grow easily. You know, a guy gets a second car or somebody likes electric vehicle, but once you start to get into sizable penetration, you run into all sorts of problems with uh, waste, with charging stations, with uh, the issues that people don't like, uh, remote charging at night uh, in an unsupervised area, cold weather issues, and so I think we're going to see a little bit of a speed bump for, for EVs. The penetration is going to slow down.
1: So going from 2% <laughs> to 100% uh, over the next, what, 27 years, is that even remotely realistic?
2: That's what a lot of people are pushing for. My guess is about 15 to 20%. Still a big market from one5 to 3 billion vehicles on the planet of the earth by 2050. That's a you know about a 400, 500 million market for EVs, pretty big. But boy, I'll tell you, if these automakers are planning on doing all EVs, they're in for a rude shock. Ford just lost $6 billion on their EV business last year. And I think GM was losing something like $60,000 per EV that they produced. So it's going going to be very, very ugly. And that is if the market holds up, if the market slows down, uh, it's going to be very, very tough for many companies.
1: One thing Michael Moore did in his film Planet of the Humans, he showed that when you actually count how you make electric vehicles, in particular the batteries, how you make wind turbines, how you make solar panels, that they were in fact really, really dirty. And I guess another component is land use. I mean, how does these so-called renewable energy sources compare with traditional energy sources for land use?
2: We need to ask your audience to think about which is more environmentally friendly, a a power plant that uses one unit of land to put out one unit of of electricity, or one that uses 100 units of land to put out one unit of electricity? Seems Mm -hmm. like a pretty obvious answer. (laughs) A Canadian by the name of Vaclav Smil has written a book on this, an excellent book, that looks at energy density. And for all these sources, and if we set nuclear at about one unit of land for a unit of energy, natural gas would be at about 0.8, coal about 1.7. But the renewables all come up much, in much, much higher. Solar, 119 units of land for one unit of energy. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, wind, wind between 50 and 835, uh, 50 times as much if you only count uh, the pad for the wind turbine tower and the roads. But if you cover the entire landmass, it's 835 times as much land. And biomass uh, wins the prize, 1,500 units of land for one unit of of electricity. A study was done uh, by the uh, Princeton University in 2020 called Net Zero America. And Princeton is a renewable energy fan. But they pointed out if we were to go from 10% to 50% wind and solar, 10% is about what it was in 2020, 50% to 50% require 228,000 square miles of new land. <laughs> and oh, wow. that's bigger than, than six Midwestern uh, states in the United States. So this really is not going to happen. There's going to be issues with, with uh, land use and transmission. A lot of people are going to oppose these big land grabs. But nevertheless, we have people that think this is possible. I heard a great analogy the other day. Somebody said uh, this is like uh, jumping out of an airplane and hoping someone's going to invent a parachute on the way down.
1: you got to invent it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what a lot of these folks think. Uh, so land is a real big issue. Another one is intermittency, of course. The Achilles heel of renewables. If you, if you have solar, it doesn't provide electricity at night. And if the clouds uh, roll over, uh, you lose about half your output. And if it snows and covers your, your solar panels, you lose it all. Uh, not very good in the winter. Uh, wind output is very erratic. Wind can generate up to uh, maybe offshore 35% of their uh, nameplate capacity, but that wind can disappear in a couple hours, a half a day. So it's very, very intermittent. And we today, people are used to always on electricity systems. Nevertheless, they think they can go 100% wind and solar and still achieve a reliable electricity. And that is not going to be possible.
1: Just to back up a little bit, why are governments and the media continuing to promote green energy if it's only going to lead to a disaster?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's because of the fears uh, that humans are causing dangerous global warming. Uh, they have accepted the, the notion that carbon dioxide is a pollutant, uh, which is wrong. And uh, we now have 180 heads of state, the United Nations, most of our scientific organizations, most of the Fortune 500 companies, most of our universities that uh, side with the theory that humans are causing dangerous warming. And so as the world is following this and is spending almost a trillion dollars a year to try and replace uh, coal, oil and gas, uh, not only in our electrical systems, but also in our vehicles, also in our heavy industry it is the, the biggest superstition in modern history, uh, the, the idea that a, that a trace gas in our atmosphere that makes our plants grow, uh, dangerous warming. A couple of real good facts that I know that you know. The first is we've only had 1.2 degrees Celsius of warming since 1880 in 140 years, very, very small. The second is that uh, current temperatures are not abnormally warm. If you look over the last 10,000 years, we've had several multi-century long periods when it was warmer, naturally warmer than today. And those were during times when there was effectively zero emissions from human society. So the whole theory is very, very tenuous. And we're going to find out in the next two or three decades uh, that the theories are wrong and we're not causing dangerous warming.
1: Mm -hmm. I hear a whole spectrum of estimates as to how much global warming we're causing by our CO2 emissions. Yeah I mean, some people some people say no. We have people like Challenger at USC even saying it's causing cooling. But uh, some people say it's going to be a catastrophe. Then you have the lukewarmers. Patrick Michaels was a lukewarmer. He thought, yeah, there's yeah. going to be warming, but it's not going to be catastrophic. Well, where do you fall on that spectrum?
2: Well, I'm on the more conservative end. I think I think that that even the rise in atmospheric CO2 is caused is driven by natural factors. There, there's a law that most people don't know, but if you're a chemist, you know, called Henry's law. Henry's law says there's a relationship between a gas dissolved in a liquid and the air over a liquid. Mm-hmm. And uh, you see that in a pop bottle. If you if you open the open the uh, uh, lid of a pop bottle, your your cola will go flat. And that's because the carbon dioxide will then escape into the air and into the atmosphere. So picture this. we have So if if the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere is related to the amount in the oceans, today we have 50 times as much carbon dioxide dissolved in the ocean as we do in the atmosphere. Much, much larger than what's in the atmosphere. And the oceans are always exchanging carbon dioxide. They're releasing it into the atmosphere and absorbing it. And so we have this interface. Uh, The atmosphere is about five miles thick and on the horizontal axis, the the interface to the oceans is on the order of 10,000 miles or so. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so we have this interface and the the proponents of the theory of man-made warming don't believe in Henry's law. They say, well, they (laughs) invent things like a buffer layer and a lot of other things. And they say, we're not getting this exchange in CO2. But I think it's basically impossible for us to double atmospheric CO2, because we'd be changing that 50 to 1 ratio between the oceans and the atmosphere. And so uh, this rise is being dri- driven by the atmosphere, in my opinion, not the very tiny amount that in- industry puts out relative to what's going on in nature.
1: Uh-huh. And, and isn't it true also that as the oceans warm, they outgas and that therefore could be the cause of the CO2 increase is that the oceans gradually are warming.
2: Uh, that could be, but if you look at the if you look at the numbers and the formulas, there's not enough temperature rise to cause the rise we're seeing in CO2. I think there's some biologics involved too. You know, we have uh, the oceans filled with plankton and animals and all sorts of things. They emit CO2. There's things going on there, and there's many many other things that are are unknown about about uh, what's going on with the uh, the great global currents going around the oceans. Are they speeding up? Are they slowing down? Would affect the amount of heat going in the atmosphere? A lot of factors that scientists really don't know. Uh, nevertheless, scientists have focused on zeroed in and they've become obsessed with the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, a very, very small part of the overall climate. So I'm not really a lukewarmer. I'm a, yeah, we're warming, but it's uh, it's probably not measurable. Our effect on the greenhouse effect, uh, very, very small
1: hmm Is it possible that with the lag between when the ocean warms up and when it releases CO2, and I've, I know this is a debatable thing, but I noticed that the lag that they're talking about, those people who support that, is about 800 years. Now, 800 years ago, we were just still in the medieval warm period. So is it possible that the oceans uh, releasing CO2 is a result of the medieval warm period?
2: It is possible. I, I really couldn't comment on that. The 800-year the period, you, you quote, is uh, geologists will show if they, if they look back at ice cores and other sorts of things, they see a rise in global temperatures uh, during the last, between the periods between ice ages. And as you say, then we see a rise of CO2 in the atmosphere 600 to 800 years after the rise in temperature. And so the, that data would ap- apparently say that, yeah, the CO2 is not causing the rise. The CO2 is a result of other factors that are going on, the oceans and the change in temperatures. I'd like to switch
1: over to electric cars because this is sort of the favored thing of Joe Biden and our prime minister. How do they compare with fossil fuel powered cars in terms of their efficiency and range and cost?
2: The great thing about electrics is you can charge at home. That's a real plus for many, many people. If you've got a garage, you can plug, you can upgrade it, you can plug it in, and you can drive. So it makes a real nice, a commuter sort of a, a thing. But there, there are some issues, as you say, about electrics. First, people should know that by driving an electric car, you really don't help the air at all. You really don't help the pollution. A lot of people say that. Um, there's almost nothing that comes out of our, vehicle, our gasoline and uh, diesel vehicles today except carbon dioxide and water vapor. A volatile organic compounds, carbon monoxide, all these other things are down about 98% since 1980. So we're really talking about elimination eliminating CO2. But there are some big issues with EVs. The first is driving range and weight. If you take, for example, a Honda Civic. Uh, it has a 12.4-gallon uh, gas tank. It can hold 77.5 pounds of fuel and go 360 miles. If you want to take that 77 pounds of, of weight and put it into batteries and put it in a Chevy Volt, you can only go 21 miles. <laughs> 21? You <have> <laughs> in- yeah, you have to increase that battery size by a factor of 17, 1300 pounds to be able to go 360 miles. Oh, man. So EV... <laughs> EVs are going to be heavier, about 50% heavier than typical gasoline or diesel cars. A second big disadvantage is vehicle cost. The metric I use a 2022 Toyota Corolla, manufacturer price about $20,000. An equivalent Chevy Volt, uh, Bolt. I'm sorry, a 2022 Chevy Bolt costs about 54, costs about $31,000, a 54% premium. So we have a vehicle cost issue. And uh, where electricity is very high, or if you, if you have to go out to a public charger, you're actually going to pay more for an electric car versus a gasoline or diesel car.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, do you think this is likely to improve significantly going forward? Or are there actually physical limitations as to why it has to be this heavy or why right. it has to be expensive?
2: Yeah, the price of lithium ion batteries have come down very well in the last decade until about uh, two years ago. And they're up about uh, 50% those prices in the last two years. And a lot of that is because of lithium prices, which went up by a factor of 10. The problem with the transition to all electrics is you need a huge amount of special minerals. The International Energy Agency points out that for each electric car, we need six times the special minerals lithium, cobalt, nickel, copper, as you do with a a traditional gasoline car. And so to put a a battery in in an EV a 1000 pound car battery, which is really what you need for any range requires you to move 500,000 pounds of earth in a mining operation. Wow. And many people have said, well, to make this transition, we need to increase the amount of lithium, cobalt, nickel and copper by five or 10 times globally. Now, Uh, Not only is that going to be expensive, it's going to take a long time should it occur. Again, the International Energy Agency, one of my favorite sources, a big proponent of this energy transition, points out that a copper mine from start, first prospecting to actually producing something is 16 years to produce a copper mine. And many of these other materials are the same way. So this is going to keep pressure on the prices. It's going to keep the price gap for a long time between electric vehicles and uh, diesel and uh, gasoline vehicles.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess the pollution produced when you're having huge amounts of mining and processing of earth, that's surely gonna be even worse than what we'd see with any fossil fuels.
2: Uh, it is, we, we, uh, we are trading a, a fuel intensive society for a materials intensive society. And a lot of these mines uh, outside of the US and Canada and Europe are not real good situations. Uh, lithium requires uh, something like 500,000 gallons of water for every ton of lithium we produce. Uh, co- leading producer, cobalt, is the Democratic Republic of Congo, where they're using uh, forced labor and child labor so that people can drive their Teslas back in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, nickel is, is produced in Indonesia, and they're dumping tailings into the ocean. Copper in, in, in South America and other places and then we have China. China is actually the biggest refiner in the world of these, of these uh, metals. A lot of them are mined and then sent to China uh, for processing. And so uh, what uh, US and Europe is doing by pushing this transition is becoming dependent upon China, which is maybe not the best thing right now considering the, uh, the issues that we have. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of issues with the mining of uh, materials for electric vehicles. The world needs to come to grips with that that trade-off.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. We have to go for a break now. My guest today has been Steve Gorham, Executive Director of Climate Science Coalition of America. After the break, I'm going to ask Steve what he thinks about Ottawa's claim, the city of Ottawa, that they can have electric vehicles without any human rights abuses, without any environmental issues. I'm going to ask him about that because I kind of doubt that it's even possible. So come back after the break.
0: For 25% off your first order. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution Cofix Rx. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a COFIXRX nasal solution cleanse. That's COFIXRX.com. Save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD at COFIXRX.com. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, immune super boost is not a pill it's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity like vitamin c d3 zinc elderberry and echinacea these physician formulated gels come in a small gel pack tear off the top and shoot it down or mix it in water boost your immunity go to healthycell.com and use limited time code out loud for 25 percent off your first order risk-free love it or your money back guaranteed healthycell.com code out loud healthycell.com code out loud we are fighting
1: the ultimate fight between good and evil americaoutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative thing well it was walt whitman the poet who said keep your face always toward the sunshine and shadows will fall behind
0: you america out loud talk radio The liberty
1: and justice for all so i'm back with steve Gorham, executive director of the climate science coalition of america steve's new book Green Breakdown, the coming renewable energy failure, will be out by August 1st. So we really look forward to that. Now, Steve, we were at a council meeting just recently when one of the councillors answered the question about whether or not there were environmental and human rights abuses in the making of the electric vehicles that Ottawa wants to convert to. And just for our listening audience, I'll play the recording of what he said.
0: So for the uh, the person who asked the question earlier about uh, the uh, the, uh, the the ethical mining of batteries for electric buses. So I got that question, like I said, from a constituent. I got an answer from someone at OC Transpo. I'll read the answer. Uh, The procurement of OC Transpo's current electric buses were in accordance with the City's general terms and conditions, which includes ethical purchasing to ensure minimum labour standards and prohibits child labour or forced labour. Furthermore, future future procurements
2: of buses will also ensure that ethical purchasing, including prohibiting child
0: labour or forced labour, is considered into any resulting awards of contract.
1: So Steve, do you think what he just said is realistic? Can the city of Ottawa actually buy environmentally friendly, non-child labor, you know, no human rights abuses? Can they really get electric vehicles that will actually fill those criteria?
2: Yeah, I'm, I would question that as, as I don't think he's going to be able to find the volumes of materials from the United States or from Canada uh, for these cars. Again, as we discussed earlier, uh, much of lithium comes from from uh, South America. They have big pollution problems with their mining. Copper as well, cobalt from the Democratic Republic of Congo. The uh, rare earth elements. There's a place called Rare Earth Lake in China where where that's a big producer, and and the soil all the way around this lake is is highly polluted. So there are many many issues with these levels of mining that people are talking about. And it's going to be it's going to be a shifting uh, because environmental controls are not strong in in China and Africa and Southeast Asia and South America. It's going to be a shifting of problems to those locations. A lot of that hidden from the people that want to drive cars in Ottawa. Yeah, they won't. They won't see those issues.
1: And it strikes me that China might say to them, oh, yes, definitely. We fulfill all your requirements and we'll sign this document saying there's no child labor, et cetera. I mean, can you really believe them?
2: <laughs> well, you know, China is a, is not an open media society, but there's a lot of talk about folks of uh, a different races being oppressed in China, being forced to work in mines and other sorts of things. And I don't think we see that, but it, but it is a real factor. So, uh, you know, it's a very tough situation. Every source of energy, every uh, source of technology has environmental drawbacks. Uh, we're now killing... Uh, something like a million birds a year in the United States and, and probably as many bats. And the uh, U.S. government has given exemptions to these uh, the wind turbine co- uh, companies, that kill, they kill eagles, which are protected species and there, yeah. there doesn't yeah. seem to be any penalty. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's, it's unfortunate, but you know, this is all sacrificed on the altar of man-made global warming and, and therefore any sort of environmental other issues we have to ignore. Whales is another one off New Jersey. I think Patrick Moore just came out and said he thought that the sonar surveying by wind companies of the bottom of the of the ocean there was disrupting what the whales usually do with their sonar. Uh, and so a lot of them are washing up on shore. We don't really know the cause of that. But in the old days, uh, Greenpeace and a lot of others would be out uh, up at arms about uh, whale deaths. And they all seem to have been very, very silent on what's going on now, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I've heard that since whales see so to speak with sonar that when they pile drive right into the ocean bottom this causes huge amounts of noise and of course which spreads much farther transmits much farther in water than air they said it would be like flooding our environment with magnesium flares you know hmm. I mean it literally blinds them from a sonar
2: perspective huh yeah that would be another factor but just the they're using a sonar to ping the bottom right now to map it for these wind turbines. And, and so that's, a, you know, directly what the whale, would affect the whales directly. Yeah. Uh, at least those are some of the theories.
1: Yeah. And the Altamont Pass in California, the wind farm there, it's not really a farm, but it apparently kills 116 golden eagles every year. And it's yeah. been doing that for several decades once again, they get kill permits for these sorts of activities. I'd like to switch back over to EVs. I had a question.
2: Yeah.
1: Canada, you know, our typical average temperature here, let's say, in February is maybe minus 15 or something. Uh, <laughs>
2: sometimes Celsius, yeah.
1: To, yeah, sometimes down to minus 30 Celsius. We occasionally get down to minus 40. I mean, would you want to have an electric vehicle at minus 30?
2: No, absolutely not. I've talked to many people. EVs are not for cold weather. At 30 degrees Fahrenheit or, or just about zero Celsius, you lose 20% of your driving range. And then at about 10 degrees Fahrenheit, which is probably something like, I don't know, minus 20 Celsius, EVs literally will not charge outside. You can't, unless you have a heated garage, you're not going to be able to charge those. So for all the people that don't have a heated garage in Canada, they will not be able to drive from uh, December through February. I'm in Chicago, I've got a garage, I've got a three car garage, I've got a heater in it, but I don't want to heat it all winter. That would be very expensive just so I could charge a vehicle. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't, the the problem with all this is this mandate thing that we all have to get rid of internal combustion engine cars. And by the way, we have uh, in the United States right now, the EPA is basically making it impossible for automakers to produce a line of gasoline or diesel cars anymore they have they have restrictions both on the emissions of carbon dioxide per kilometer and the miles per gallon that you have to achieve and those current regulations that they've set up and that they're tightening is going to make it impossible for any car company so far they've been able to do it with mix of hybrids and with exemptions and other things but those days are disappearing so uh you know, it's just going to be a real, a real tough problem. Mm-hmm. Another yep. issue too. I, I, uh, I sent you an image of a car, a Tesla, on fire. Just happened this week in Elk Grove. Guy was driving, and his car started to, to vibrate, and he stops and gets out, and the thing bursts into flame. Huh. And uh, uh, and they just let it burn. They let it burn for six hours because there's no way to put these out. And he said, you know, he's just thankful that his kids weren't in the back seats because they wouldn't have gotten out of the car. And so there's a customer loss. Again, when things are small and uh, people use them for specialized needs, they can grow very fast. But as soon as you get to the general population, people don't necessarily want EVs. And we well, these governments want to force you. You've got to have one. We're not going to let you drive anything else and we all think we can control the temperature of the planet if we do that. I mean, that, is, huh. that yeah. is the definition of superstition.
1: Yeah, for sure. Now, people who support EVs would say, oh yeah, but you know, one car burning out of millions. I mean, this is so, in comparison with a gasoline powered car, do you think EVs are more fire dangerous?
2: I do think they are. A gasoline car, if you're a safe driver, most gasoline fires occur after collisions. You know, if you if you uh, you run into another car, you're on the side of the road, and your car starts to burn. But an EV can just go burn up. By the way, I've seen, uh, and you probably too, you can find some pictures online of electric buses that have ignited. Uh, there's there's one from China where you see people are just jumping out of the bus, and the whole bus is burning. I saw another one in, in Paris where this has occurred.
1: Oh, I and saw we, that.
2: Yeah, we have some we have some proponents like our, our, uh, our vice president, Kamala Harris, who's gushing about electric buses. But uh, Lord God forbid that we have one of these go up with 20 or 30 kids in the, in the bus. So oh, yeah. I tell my family, uh, don't let your kids get on electric buses. You know, don't mm-hmm. don't go through that sort of thing. There, there are many, many cases. A guy was asleep at night. His car is up in a parking garage and the thing just just ignites and it burns a bunch of cars around it these things can't be controlled by drivers, unlike other fires. I just think it's, it's uh, something that's going to have to be solved. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a big problem waiting to happen, unfortunately.
1: So people making decisions today, politicians, forcing people to take EVs, I mean, essentially, they're going to be liable for a lot of future problems.
2: They will be to the voters. We have a lot of exemptions for, uh, for public officials. They can't be sued for, for a lot of different reasons. But, uh-huh. but you know, I think eventually electric cars have their, have their purpose. There are some people that are going to use them. They're very good for short distances. Um, if you can charge in the garage, they'll probably solve most of the fire problems. My wife and I have two homes. We have uh, to be near the grandkids and family. We've got one in Virginia Beach one in Chicago, 925 miles away. And we have driven that uh, that 925 miles in a single day. My wife doesn't like to let me do that anymore. But, uh, you know, an EV would be great for the first 300 miles, but then you'd have to charge for an hour to do another 100 miles. And you'd have to charge for another hour to do another 100 miles. Uh, you just, if you want to travel any sorts of distances, you just, uh, you can't do it with an EV Another thing is these, these unsupervised charging locations. Um, you know, you ought to ask, is your wife going to want to go in the dark somewhere that's unsupervised? I don't think so. There's, you know, there's going to be a lot of folks that don't want to do that. And uh, we also have issues with people running around cutting off the cables at Tesla places right now for the copper, because again, oh, they're no. unsupervised. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that need to shake out here Mm -hmm. Uh, in the whole EV market.
1: Yeah. Now, one thing I find interesting is the fact that since it takes so long to charge an EV uh, battery, in in comparison with just filling up your tank with gas, I mean, if we had the same number of EVs as we have gasoline-powered cars, then it suggests that you would need a lot more land area just for the charging stations because the cars are (laughs) sitting there there for half an hour instead of... Yeah, they're
2: just sitting there. That's right, for a... Typically, you can fill up a a gasoline or diesel car in about six minutes. But an EV at a a 50 kilowatt high speed DC charger, it's about 30 minutes to go maybe a little more than 100 miles. So it takes about five times as long. So parking problems are going to get worse. The more EVs we have, the more parking problems we're going to have. We're going to have these things on the street sitting there and people fighting over who's blocking them. And and then they're going to want to charge you. There are already some uh, systems that say, If you sit there longer than your 30 minutes, you got to pay additional money, time of charge sorts of programs. So, yeah, lots and lots of issues.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, Jay Larry used to feel and Jay was, of course, the co-host of the show and the primary driver of the show. He passed away, unfortunately, just uh, back in January. He used to feel that what happened in Texas, where because of their over reliance on wind power and other factors, they had up to 700 deaths in February 2021 and $200 billion in damage. He felt that that kind of scenario would have to happen over and over and over across the Western world before people woke up. I mean, are you that pessimistic or do you think that we can end it? I
2: I think that is going to happen in a number of, of cases. I don't know if we'll have the same number of deaths uh the, the uh, whole Texas thing was an interesting thing because, well, let me just answer your question first. I think New England is a primary candidate right now. Um, there was a study put out by the New England ISO uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, all five of the six states want to go to 80% electric. And so they did this study, and they found that if they did a 300% overcapacity with wind and solar they would still have 16 days a year of blackouts and an additional 36 days that were at risk every year uh, by going to renewables. Uh, We're gonna see this around the world. Australia has no nuclear plants. They have only 6% hydropower. And so when they go replace all that coal and and gas, they're gonna have nothing there that is gonna keep the lights on. Uh, And you can't build enough batteries. There are very few places where where you can go anywhere close to the amount of renewables people are talking about, except, again, possibly Canada, because you get 60, 65% from hydropower. Then you can get up, up, up close to all renewables. But otherwise, uh, yeah, unfortunately, we're going to have to go through these blackout periods with all the impacts.
1: Because mm-hmm. the city of Ottawa wants to get rid of all fossil fuels and go almost 100% to wind and solar power. And that gets a lot colder than New England. So we're going to likely have many, many days of blackouts, right? If we did. Uh,
2: and, a, and a big change is not only the EVs, it's, it's a switch to, uh, to electric appliances. The New England ISO study found that that was about twice as big of an energy demand as the electric vehicles.
1: You know, Steve, right now I'm having to plug in my, I guess it's a lithium battery in my cell phone. The phone's uh-huh. not an S8. And I find two things happen. First of all, the battery is decaying very quickly. And now, you know, it's a problem. The other thing is I was out walking the other day when it was about minus 20 Celsius. It was pretty cold. And I was talking to my sister and suddenly the phone goes off. And so I got home. I thought I was out of power and I went to charge it up. And a little indicator came up saying, cannot charge at this temperature. So I (laughs) I had to wait till my phone warmed up. I don't know if it was out of power or not, but I couldn't even charge it. And these kinds of problems really will become much more common as we move more and more to electrification.
2: Yes, and and one of the big examples I can give is grid-scale batteries. If we've got a few more moments.
1: Oh yeah, we got time. Batteries is a big issue because the city thinks they can actually back up wind and solar with batteries, and actually have more than the time required to find a flashlight.
2: (laughs) Well, they better put them in a heated building because they're not going to do very well in the cold. But I'll give you an example. So. Uh, if I can remember the numbers here, New York City has planned to put 9,000 megawatt hours of wind offshore off Long Island, and uh, that's going to cost them about uh, nine billion dollars. They're going to back it up with 3,000 megawatt hours of batteries, which is going to cost wow. about uh, six thousand, six or seven thousand, uh, uh, six or seven million dollars. Nine million for the for the winds, six or seven for for the batteries. The problem Sorry, is that those those, sorry, those
1: did, you mean billion? did you
2: mean billion? Billion. I'm oh, sorry, okay. I should said billion. Say so it's, it's 9,000 megawatt hours and 9 billion for the wind, 3,000 megawatt hours and 7.5 billion for the batteries. So wow. the, the, the problem with the batteries is that can only back up two to four hours of the wind. So if you want to back up an entire day, you've got to multiply that by about a factor of either five or 10. So you're you're talking about 45 to 90 billion. And then you have to remember that the, the batteries only last about 10 or 12 years. They, they only last half as long as the wind system. So you have to double that again. So a good rule of thumb is if you wanna back up wind or solar, you need about 10 times the price of in batteries to back up the, uh-huh. the, the price of the wind and solar, just add another 10 times to that. Uh, these things are just not going to be feasible unless we have some sort of a miracle. Again, it's like the guy jumping out of the aircraft without the parachute.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, And also for Ottawa, this would be very important to know, they can't charge it when it's minus 25 or something. I mean, that would be a danger to the battery. Is that right?
2: I don't know if it would be a danger. They just are going to be very, very slow charging uh, mm-hmm. until it warms up, unless they heat it. So you know, if you're counting on it to be to be charged again when you have a lot of a lot of renewables in a, in a day or a week later, it's it's probably not going to occur. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. And I think I think Canada is mandating what uh, by 2035 100 uh, percent zero emission vehicles. I think they're trying to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like
1: uh, it's like they're playing a board game. You know, that it doesn't have to actually match with reality. I mean, uh, <laughs> the other thing I find interesting in the United States, they're Talking about banning gas stove, I mean, has that that actually happened anywhere or is this still
2: has? Yeah, so so we have six states now where counties or cities have banned uh, gas stoves. Uh, Those are California, Oregon, Washington State, uh, New York, Massachusetts, and Maryland. And those folks get all the headlines. And they basically said in new construction, you can't put in gas appliances. But at the same time, most people don't know that we have about 20 states now that have passed laws prohibiting cities and counties from banning gas appliances.
1: Oh, good for them.
2: Saying that you can't. And there was just recently a decision by the Ninth Circuit Court, which is on the west coast of the United States, a unanimous decision striking down the Berkeley uh, 2018 law that prohibited gas appliances and new construction. Berkeley, California was the uh, the start of all this. And it's interesting, the Restaurant Owners Association of California sued Berkeley <laughs> huh. because, because it cost them a lot more, two to four times as much for gas, and it wasn't as good for cooking. So they sue Berkeley. It goes to the Ninth Circuit Court, and the circuit court said... That uh, this violated U.S. federal law, the Energy Policy and Conservation Act of 1975, which prohibits regulations that favor one type of fuel over another. Oh, So what's going to happen in the U.S. is this ruling is going to go in suits against all these other states. And I, I don't know, maybe they can change their regulations a little bit, their statutes, but it's going to make it kind of tough, at least in the U.S., for this to occur. I think in Canada you have uh, this is you have bands in Vancouver now, uh, British Columbia, <laughs> I believe, but I'm not so sure about anywhere else.
1: So restaurants would have to stop using natural gas for cooking, and they'd have to start using electricity. And you're saying the big issue there is cost.
2: Big issue is cost and flexibility. You can turn off a burner immediately with a gas stove, but you can't. The hot plate is still hot. An electric stove it, it takes a long time to cool down. Mm-hmm. now all these are new construction right now but there are some places where they're actually trying to to pull it out of buildings huh. netherlands is one of those amsterdam has said they're going to be a gas-free city by 2050 and so the nation is literally disconnecting natural gas lines to homes they're going to disconnect seven million residences by 2050 is what they say they've got this plan to do this and wow. force everybody to get a heat pump which is going to be very expensive so we'll see how that turns out but I do believe that the reason I wrote Green Breakdown is I think we're going to have revolts around the world on this. We're going to have people say, hey, uh, you can't take my gas in my gas stove. A net zero is going to become a hated word. It already is in England in many ways. And uh, when people are having blackouts and their electricity prices are going way up, you know, their car won't start in the winter, won't charge in the winter, <laughs> Uh, they're going to want to go back to something that's sensible. So I think we're Mm going to get back to common sense, but it's going to take a few decades to do.
1: A few decades of pain, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. Now, Europe has been ahead of us, so to speak, with respect to conversion to so-called green energy. Can tell us about some of the things that have happened there, because this is a forewarning of what will happen here.
2: Yeah. So we're in the midst of a a world energy crisis right now, and it's centered in Europe. Um, For many, uh, for about 15 or 20 years now, Europe has uh, become increasingly uh, dependent upon renewables, intermittent renewables and natural gas. Uh, They closed a hundred nuclear plants,
1: Mm.
2: something like 34 in England and 30 in Germany. They also, 23 nations took pledges saying they weren't going to use coal anymore. And so they became very dependent. And then in in the year of 2021, we had a very low wind year in Europe. Uh, Electricity from wind was down 20 or 30% in England, Germany, and France, and probably most of the rest of the continent. And so they burned gas all summer. And by the end of of 2021, the stocks were very low. And so the price of natural gas went up by a factor of 5 and this was two or three months before uh, the Ukraine invasion. Then, with the Ukraine invasion, it, it skyrocketed. I, I just looked. I look pretty much every day on what the price is. It's still up about uh, two and a half times from what, what it was two years ago for natural gas. Electricity is is up about four times what it was. And so we've. This has been a tremendous uh, problem for the citizens of, of Europe. Uh, gas bills are very, very high. Uh, they're putting wood stoves in, in in the schools in Hungary because uh, to keep to reduce the amount of gas. Yeah. And the, uh, there's a Swiss minister has, who said uh, you need to shower with a friend <laughs> instead of showering on your own. And they've set uh, temperature regulations for all the businesses and homes saying you can't be lower than I think it's 80 degrees Fahrenheit, whatever that is, Celsius uh, in the summer. And you can't be higher than 67 Fahrenheit, whatever Celsius it is in the winter. And, and so uh, all of these things are impacting the people in Europe. But, but the, uh, the leaders there still are saying they're going to the stay the course. None of them have renounced green energy, but their actions are showing something different. Uh, Germany has restarted 27 coal-fired power plants in the last oh. year. Wow, and Europe's Europe's coal consumption is up twenty percent. They've they also have ordered and and have started construction of twenty five liquefied natural gas terminals around the continent. Five of them in Germany, and then they're all around the continent to be able to import more natural gas since they're not getting it from Russia from the pipelines anymore. They're importing it, and they are also increasing gas production in Norway, in Netherlands. and I think Italy I'm trying to remember some of the other nations. Um, so while they say they're still doing green energy, there's been a retreat. I mean, the, the actual things that are going on are, uh, are uh, uh, showing something different. But Europe's in, in a real trouble right now. They don't have the electricity surpluses. They used to have, uh, when Germany had their nuclear plants, they had a lot of electricity surpluses. Uh, France also was pro- producing a lot of surpluses of electricity but um, their nuclear plants are in some disrepair. And so they got, they're facing a, a decade of problems on energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just, see, have, just have to see how this, uh, how this rolls out.
1: Yeah, Well, we have to wrap up there. So in a way, you're seeing a positive trend in these companies or countries actually waking up. And that hopefully will help prevent it happening here. Do you think Americans are paying attention to what's going on in Europe?
2: <laughs> well, not too much yet. A lot depends on the, on the new election. Uh, but we do have, for example, Texas is now putting in subsidies for natural gas. They wanna build more natural gas plants. Uh, California has uh, started five new uh, natural gas plants in California because of their blackouts. So people are eventually getting around to some common sense. We'll just have to see how, it's, how it goes.
1: Yeah, well, that's an optimistic way to end. My guest today has been Steve Gorham. He's executive director of Climate Science Coalition of America. Steve is an author of several books on energy, which is great because he's a master's of science in electrical engineering. His most recent book, Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure, will be out on August 1st. And I'll include a link to Steve's page so people can see his books and buy them because I've used them for my writing. They're very, very valuable. So thanks for being on the
2: show, Steve. Thank you, Tom
1: okay so this is tom harris signing out from the other side of the story